Good morning, everyone. Hope you had a healthy, happy, safe 4th of July. Did you have a good one? I did. Welcome back. Good. Thanks. It's good, it's to, good to be you. here. Two full days of kids and swimming, and I'm back. So you're ready That's to nice. work. I'm ready to work. <laughs> uh, we have a lot to get to. Let's get started with five things to know for this Wednesday, July 5th. The suspect behind Monday's mass shooting that left five people dead in Philadelphia will be arraigned today, facing multiple counts of murder, among other charges. And also this morning, a federal judge blocked more than a dozen <laughs> Biden agencies and officials from communicating with social media companies. What's behind that decision? Why Republicans are cheering. Also, the Secret Service is investigating uh, this after suspected cocaine was found at the White House. What we're learning about the powder found in the West Wing. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen leaves today for China. It's part of an ongoing mission to smooth tensions between the two superpowers. This marks the second trip to Beijing for a Biden official just, le- just the last month. Also, Elon Musk has a new battle to wage. Rival billionaire Mark Zuckerberg teases threads his answer to those fed up with Twitter. CNN This Morning begins right now. This is where we begin, though, today. The suspected mass shooter accused of going on a rampage through the streets of Philadelphia will make their first court appearance this morning. Police say the suspect was wearing body armor and a ski mask, firing randomly at cars and people walking in the neighborhood with an assault-style rifle. Again, this happened on Monday night. Philadelphia's district attorney says the suspect will be arraigned today on multiple counts of murder and other serious charges for killing five people and wounding others, including two children, one of them a toddler who was shot four times in the legs. Police initially identified the shooter as a 40-year-old man. Now they say the suspect is non-binary. Bryn Gingras is older, reporting in the details that we've learned uh, this morning. She joins us now. So any, any more updates also on the victims, those shot but not killed? Yeah, I mean, it's just this has devastated the entire community, Poppy, as you can imagine. Let's go first to uh, that 40-year-old suspect, that person, that suspect, will be arraigned in court later today. We're still working out the timing now that the courts are open. We'll continue uh, to follow that. But it suspected on charges of murder, aggravated assault, some weapons charges. That's because authorities say this suspect just fired indiscriminately on Monday night through several blocks of Philadelphia with an AR-15, wearing a bulletproof vest, also wearing a ski mask, and carrying a scanner. We know that five people were killed. The youngest of the victims, a 15-year-old, uh, our affiliate also saying a 20-year-old was killed. Their mother saying they were just going to a local store to pick up a candy bar. Just devastating for this community. He wants you to hear from officials there about what they're saying about this incident and the guns that are on the streets of Philadelphia. I am frustrated and outraged that mass shootings like this continue to happen in communities across the United States. This country needs to re-examine its conscience and find out how to get guns out of dangerous people's hands. We are begging Congress to protect lives and do something about America's gun problem. It is disgusting, the lack of proper gun legislation that we have in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Some of that legislation might have made a difference here. 50 shell casings were found in the streets uh, following this shooting, Phil. 
And Brett, I think the big question, along with what's happening on the legal side of things, is the two young boys that were shot, including uh, the, the young child that was shot four times in the legs. Do we have any updates on their condition right now? Yeah, the good news, Phil, is that they are going to be okay. These two children that you're talking about, Phil, there's a two sets of twins, two-year-olds. One of them was shot several times in the legs. The other had uh, injuries from a window shattering, but also a 13-year-old was shot several times as well, but they are going to be okay. Poppy and Phil. Thank goodness, but still tragic. Bryn, thank you. Appreciate it. Ahead in our 8 a.m. Eastern hour, we're going to be joined at the top of the hour by the Philadelphia District Attorney. You just heard from him there. Larry Krasner will be on the program ahead of the suspect's arraignment. Also overnight, another mass shooting. This one in the nation's capital. Metro police say at least nine people were shot and injured, including a nine-year-old and a teenager while celebrating the 4th of July. All nine suffered non-life-threatening injuries. Police say they're looking for a dark-colored SUV seen on Mead Street. As it drove through the street, it stopped and it fired shots in the direction of some of our residents that were outside just celebrating the 4th of July. Uh, it appears that the shooting was targeted. That shooting follows two other holiday mass shootings, one in Baltimore that killed two people and another in Fort Worth, Texas that killed three. The suspects in both of those cases are still at large. Also this, a federal judge is now blocking the Biden administration from asking social media companies to take down certain content. This is a big deal, and this could be a huge blow to the White House's fight against misinformation about COVID vaccines, elections, and many other critical issues. It's a big win for the Republican attorneys general who sued and accused the federal government of censorship. Now, in his ruling, the Trump-appointed judge writes, quote, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the United States government seems to have assumed a role similar to an Orwellian Ministry of Truth. Not really subtle there. Let's bring in CNN business and politics correspondent Vanessa Yurkevich, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, CNN political commentator and political anchor for Spectrum News, Errol Lewis. Uh, Vanessa, I, I want to start with you. This was stunning yesterday. Um, I know talking to Biden administration officials, they were very surprised, particularly by the scale of the ruling and what it actually means. What more do we know? It essentially is banning key government agencies, including the Department of Health and Human Services, the FBI, the Justice Department, the CDC, and about 12 key administration officials, including the White House press secretary uh, and the U.S. Surgeon General, from communicating with social media companies, which include Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Google, Instagram, uh, over concerns that this judge has about the communications that they've had related to uh, the pandemic. Pandemic. Now, this goes back to a 2022 lawsuit that was filed by two state attorneys generals from Missouri uh, and from Louisiana who say that the Biden administration overstepped in their communication uh, to uh, these social media companies, specifically around uh, key issues like election in integrity, vaccine misinformation and security of voting by mail. Um, now, this judge is essentially saying that there is enough evidence to say that there is concern about the communications. The White House, on the other hand, saying that they believe that they acted in the best interest of the country. They believe that it is the responsibility of these social media companies to police their own content online. But ultimately, the social media companies need to make their own independent decisions about that content. Now, Judge Doty, he is a Trump appointee. He's yet to rule on this case. But this basically is a 
big win for these states that are suing the Biden administration over what they consider violations of First Amendment rights. And in the communications that they had with these big social media companies who have a lot of power and essentially raising concerns about what those communications looked like. I think it's really uh, so interesting on so many uh, aspects. We're going to bring Sarah Fisher into the conversation on the tech side because we haven't heard from the big tech companies responding yet from Google or which owns YouTube or Twitter, etc. But just on the law, yes, this is a Trump appointed judge, but this judge was confirmed 98 to zero by the Senate. Just reading the words in this injunction, a quote, massive effort by the defendants to suppress speech based on content. Those are the judge's words calling the present case, quote, arguably involves the most massive attack against free speech in the United States history, Ellie. Yeah. It's a dramatic uh, decision by this judge. If you read through it, he's citing to literature and George Washington and Ben Franklin. Here's what really is astonishing to me. This is a conservative ideology that clearly comes through in this decision. It's a conservative political ideology, right? We saw some of the quotes questioning vaccines, questioning masks, conservative talking points. But the ruling itself is the opposite of judicial conservatism. This is one of the most aggressive, far-reaching rulings you'll ever see. What this judge is purporting to do is to micromanage, really, the day-to-day interactions between essentially the entire executive branch, all these agencies that are listed as defendants, and the leading social media companies. And in the actual temporary injunction, the judge basically says, you're not allowed, administration, to talk to these social media companies about any protected free speech except for cybersecurity threats, national security threats, criminal threats. But where's the line? Who's going to police this? This is a judge trying to micromanage the day-to-day regular activities of the entire executive branch. I don't know that it's actually policeable by the judge, but it's really an astonishing... I don't mean this necessarily as a criticism. This is a very activist judicial opinion. Sarah, you know, I think Ellie gets to the point that I've been trying to figure out throughout the course of the last 24, I mean, we were texting about this yesterday in terms of how significant it is. Um, If you look behind the scenes, communication between the federal government and tech companies is something that has long existed. You can go back to the Snowden leaks. I think a lot of people learned a lot during that, obviously, uh, during some of the uh, portions of this lawsuit. You saw how the Biden administration was dealing with this, but also the Trump administration beforehand. And I think that's the question. When you talk to tech execs, That line that Ellie was pointing out, how do you define cybersecurity, national security, the interactions that the federal government on the law enforcement side has with these companies, very, very close-knit relationships, which have also been criticized uh, at points by both parties, what do they do here? They're incredibly frustrated, Phil. I remember talking to some executives many months ago when the new Congress came in and they pledged to have hearings to probe this level of coordination, and they feel as though this is just a political attack. There's no real proof to suggest that the government is sort of illegally trying to get in there and manipulate the content that people are seeing on their platforms. They're frustrated because after 2016, and there was, you know, allegations of election meddling with Russia, et cetera, there was a lot of pressure on them to coordinate more with the government. And Now they're saying, okay, you want us to coordinate less. But in terms of defining that line, there are a few key issues where we know that constant communication between the federal government and these tech platforms is very helpful. Kinses like uh, child pornography, terrorism, those are the types of things that we universally understand Mm -hmm. that that coordination can be very helpful. I think where we're trying to run into a new 
sort of test limit here is when it comes to things like policing conversations around vaccines. Those are things that, you know, the government would suggest or argue are a public safety initiative, something that we need to have controlled conversation over in order to ensure that the mm-hmm. public is healthy. But of course, there's the political argument that that maybe not be, isn't the case and that they shouldn't intervene in those types of conversations. I think that's where this can start to get political. But if you're asking my opinion, I think this whole thing's kind of a racket. You know, it suggests to me that there is a far more serious um, allegation of government intervention here than there actually is proof of one mm-hmm. existing. Well, an appeal is all but a certainty. But as Ellie was reminding me, it's going to go to the Fifth Circuit and then maybe to the Supreme Court and maybe expedited through through their shadow docket. What's interesting, Errol, another interesting thing to me, it's all fascinating to me, this is a different approach. Instead of going after the tech companies, like we often see when those CEOs are in Capitol Hill, lawmakers, often Republican lawmakers, go after them, accuse them of censorship. This doesn't go after the tech companies. This goes around them and to the federal government's approach here. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, strategy. The uh, tech companies have a lot to answer for. You know, as I was reading through uh, the opinion, uh, I I was reminded of the case in 2017, I think it was, 12-year-old girl live streams her own suicide, right? And it took Facebook two weeks before they even took it down. If the federal government can't pick up the phone and call those companies and say, what the hell is going on here? or take this content down, we're all in a lot of trouble. And so uh, the, the, the case itself, I think it's clearly grandstanding. Not only do the facts not support this uh, deep state conspiracy theory, but uh, you know, to release it on July 4th and to you know, sort of put, load in all of the flowery language and, and sort of you know, quote literature, the judge wants to be on the national stage, congratulations, you're there. But, but, but when, when it comes to, to actually talking to the companies, our government has done far too little. I mean, we have almost no regulation of these companies. And that is, is why and where the government, I think, does need to step up. Final thought? Um, I think on the other side of what Errol is saying, the thing that always strikes me is if it's an administration that you don't think is responsible or that you don't think has the best interests of the entire country in mind and they're having those communications, would you feel the same way? And I think this is the balance that we go back and forth with to some degree. Can, real quick, um, mm-hmm. you made the point about the Fifth Circuit, oh, Supreme yeah. Court. Yeah. Why? Well, just because it's more, it's viewed as yeah. maybe more likely to uphold so this the, judge's ruling. The appeal in this case will go to the Fifth Circuit, which would cover the Federal District of Louisiana. Known as, of the 13 federal circuits we have, the Fifth Circuit is known as the most conservative. But like I said, there's nothing judicially conservative about this ruling. So interesting, it'll be interesting to see where they come out. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Stick around. All right, former Vice President Mike Pence, he spent the 4th of July trying to declare independence, sort of, from his former boss, Donald Trump. Pence marching in a parade in Urbandale, Iowa. You can see him right there while drawing some distinctions between his thinking and some of the other Republican presidential hopefuls. But it appears to be a delicate dance, to say the least, separating his actions from those of the former president and current Republican frontrunner. Seeing as Kristen Holmes is live for us now in Washington. And Kristen, it's been a kind of a delicate dances to steal from uh, our great writers to some degree, uh, that we've been watching play out since the vice president started exploring a campaign. Now he's launched a campaign. He's fully into the campaign. That distinction, is it actually possible to draw at this early stage? Phil, it's unclear whether or not he can do that. Look, this was always the tightrope that he was going to have to walk. Can he make himself different enough from the former president? Can he separate himself enough from former President Trump while still taking credit for the popular policies of the Trump 
Pence administration. That's why you often hear Pence refer to the, quote, Trump-Pence administration. Now, I have talked to a number of Pence advisors and allies who say Iowa is really the most important state for the former vice president. And he outlined that yesterday in a strategy when he was talking. Take a listen. I can't account for what other campaigns decided, but for me, uh, it was vitally important. Uh, to be here where the journey to the White House always begins. The question is, of course, whether or not he can pick up evangelical voters there. Are there enough evangelical voters in Iowa who are looking for an alternative to President Trump or former President Trump? And then, again, drawing a differentiation between himself, Trump, who was not on the campaign trail yesterday, as well as DeSantis and Tim Scott, who are in New Hampshire. But I do want to note one thing here. Even yesterday, even on a day in which Pence was in Iowa talking to these voters that they believe are his core constituents, the core people who would get him elected if he was going to be elected to be the GOP nominee. Nominee, he couldn't get himself away from Donald Trump. Donald Trump still takes up so much oxygen. He was asked repeatedly about his calls to former Arizona Governor Doug Ducey. So it just goes to show you, you know, even though this race is in full form here, this primary is in full effect, Donald Trump is still taking up so much of the oxygen. That's a really great point. Kristen Holmes, great reporting as always. Thanks. New overnight, Israel striking Gaza in response to those rocket attacks will take you live to Jerusalem as violence and tension continue to escalate. Also this. That is not a dolphin fin. That is a shark going for a swim in a crowded Florida beach. Not ideal. We'll take a look at all the shark sightings and reported attacks for the 4th of July holiday. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, happening this morning, there are new tensions unfolding in the Middle East. Israeli forces say they've launched airstrikes in Gaza after a Palestinian rocket attack. Now, this comes just hours after Israeli for- forces pulled out of Jenin after wrapping up their largest military operation in the West Bank in more than 20 years. Now, that operation centered on a refugee camp that Israeli officials called a hornet's nest for terrorist activity. Senior Stas Gold is live for us in Jerusalem. Um, Hadass, this is a constantly evolving story at this point. Nothing new for you there on the ground. But what is the latest based on what we saw happen in Gaza? Yeah, Phil, just as those military vehicles were starting to leave Janine after this massive two-day operation, rockets were fired from Gaza towards southern Israel right around 1.32 a.m. Now, as far as we understand, five rockets were fired from Gaza by militants towards Israel. Israel responding with airstrikes at what they say were Hamas weapons and rocket sites. But as far as we understand, there were no injuries reported on either side. Regarding Janine, the military is now out. But Israeli officials, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, are saying this was not a one-time thing. Netanyahu vowing that they will not let Janine return to what he called a safe haven for militants. The IDF saying that they're out for now, but they will return if intelligence deems or compels them to go back to fight what they say is a terrorist threat. Now it's time for the cleanup, of course. In Janine, the roads are completely torn up. Houses are damaged. Cars are burned. Buildings, even hospitals are damaged right now. This was a very, very intensive operation and there is now a massive cleanup. Electricity and water was also severely damaged as a result and thousands of Palestinians had fled the refugee camp to seek safety 
elsewhere. In terms of casualties, one Israeli soldier was announced killed yesterday as a result of gunfire in Jenin. Twelve Palestinians were killed, more than 100 injured. Now, the Israeli military is saying that they don't believe any non-combatants were killed, but they do acknowledge that civilians were among the injured. As we speak, the dead in Janine are being buried in a massive joint funeral. They're going to be buried, all 12 of them, in a joint grave. And what we're actually seeing is masked militants there amongst the crowd. We are seeing also some militant flags amongst the bodies. We still don't have exact affiliations of if everybody killed were associated with a militant group or not. But that goes to show you that despite what the Israeli military is saying about trying to dismantle Janine as a militant safe haven, there's obviously still going to remain a pretty active militant uh, activity there on the ground. If they feel safe enough to go out on the streets right now during these funerals, be part of these funerals, that goes to show you that the militant activity in Janine will continue. The militant activity in across the occupied West Bank will continue. And likely these Israeli military operations, they will continue as well. Phil. Yeah, Hadass, your great reporting has shown escalation seems to be the only likely pathway at this point. Thanks, as always. Appreciate it. Well, ahead for us, more than 80 million people this morning under a severe storm threat, how it could impact your travel as people head home from the 4th of July holiday. And what we're learning about the early prison release of a high-ranking member of the Nexium. Well, there's an investigation underway in Los Angeles County this morning after police body camera video shows a deputy slamming a woman to the ground and spraying her, we want to warn you, this is difficult to watch. Look. I can't breathe. Hey, we're in a fight at the window. I can't breathe. There's no fight. Stop. You threw me down to the ground. Stop manhandling me. I didn't do nothing. You threw me down. Call the commander. While that was happening, another deputy placed her companion in handcuffs. This all happened on June 24th as deputies responded to a report of a robbery in the city of Lancaster. The deputies involved have been taken off field duty as the department continues its investigation. Also this morning, the Smallville actress who was sentenced to prison for her involvement in the cult-like group Nexium has been released. Allison Mack was arrested in 2018. She pleaded guilty to charges for her role in the sex trafficking case. She was sentenced to three years behind bars, the judge calling her a, quote, essential accomplice. The group's leader, Keith Rayner, also pleaded guilty to multiple charges and was sentenced to 120 years in prison. 80 million people under severe storm threats across the United States this morning. That could mean delays at airports and on roadways as many head home from the holidays. Let's go to our meteorologist, Britley Ritz. Britley, good morning. What's it looking like? Good morning, Poppy. Yes, yeah, so we have the same cold front causing the same issues just as we had yesterday. So if you are traveling out and about, just slow down, take it easy, and pay attention to radar, too, before you head out and about. There's that cold front stretching from the Great Lakes back into the plains. Even the threat for stronger storms across the southeast and right on up into the east coast once again, where areas are highlighted in green like Atlanta, Raleigh, and Charleston. But where we're most vulnerable will be St. Louis back up into Chicago, Oklahoma City back into Denver, where we're highlighted in yellow, Wind and hail going to be some of our bigger threats. We're talking over 60 miles per hour and one inch in diameter for hail. Let's look at the time frame. Of course, Wednesday morning, everything should be sub-severe. Weekends then redevelops as we get the heat and humidity to thrive. The storms, and you'll see that fire up right along Illinois, back into Indiana about 5, 6 o'clock. That weekends, then round two sets up. And that will set up across the plains from Oklahoma City back into St. Louis yet again as we come into the overnight hours and early 
Thursday. Again, the heat and humidity helping to fuel these storms. We're well above normal temperatures back up into the 90s. We have heat index values reaching well over 100. Hence why we have weather alerts in place like heat advisories as well as excessive heat warnings. Poppy. Okay, Britley Ritz, thanks. Mm -hmm. Well, rivalry between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg has just kicked up a notch, which is saying something since they challenged each other to a cage match. The latest move oh, yeah, from, Meta, yeah, that. That, that, from Meta <laughs> to get you to stop tweeting. Also, still ahead, wait until you see more of Aaron Burnett's exclusive sit-down interview with President Zelensky. Hear what he has to say about the rebellion within Russia. You're saying half, half of the Russian regions did not support Putin, would support Prigozhin. So, so does that mean there will be another challenge to Putin's power? This morning, President Zelensky says that new intelligence suggests Russian troops have placed objects resembling explosives on the roof of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Zelensky says it could be an attempt to simulate an attack. He calls Russia, quote, the only source of danger the planet. Meantime, in an exclusive interview with our very own Aaron Burnett, President Zelensky claims the Wagner rebellion in Russia is proof Putin is losing control of his own people. Watch this. Half of Russia supported Prigozhin. Half of Russia supported Putin. We know from our intelligence reports that Kremlin was conducting all those surveys. 18 or 19 regions of Russia firmly supported Prigozhin's actions. 21 regions of Russia firmly support Putin. Some of the Russian regions were in the balancing in the meantime without knowing for sure who to support. We all see this process that shows half of the Russian population is in serious doubt. All those stories that he controls everything, these are feeble stories now. But you're saying half, half of the Russian regions did not support Putin, would support Prigozhin. So, so does that mean there will be another challenge to Putin's power? I mean, that's, that's a dramatic split. I think that Putin will make attempt to consolidate his society. He will make everything in order to break and nullify the Wagnerites' fame and everything they were doing. He will be distancing himself from all that and will be communicating extensively in order to unify the society. His society is ununified. Pay attention to this interesting example. After all these events, where did Putin go? I can tell you, he rarely comes out to the street. We see him in his offices, etc., but we never see him out and about. Joining us now to talk about this and a lot more, Bloomberg uh, editor and foreign affairs columnist Bobby Ghosh. Bobby, it's great to have you. I just want your reaction to that. Uh, segment of Aaron's interview. We'll see the whole uh, the whole interview tonight on, on her show. But just your reaction to what he is saying here, that sort of half of the country is not allied. With well, he's quoting he's quoting statistics from his intelligence. Um, it's a little hard to gauge uh, the Russian mind right now just because Russians are not free enough to speak their mind. But it was quite revealing that when Prigozhin and his Wagner forces were making this march towards uh, Moscow, Nobody really got in the way. Uh, in, we, we've seen videos in some towns that they were welcomed, but even when they were not welcomed, they were allowed to rumble through without much resistance. And that, in a country as tightly uh, monitored as Russia is, that tells you something. That tells you, I think, almost as much as 
opinion polls about how Russians really feel. Yeah, it kind of strikes at the, remember the Ann Applebaum column we were talking yes. about, the apathy, which you can use to your benefit yeah. if yeah. you are an authoritarian leader but can work against you very strongly in moments like this. Um, you had a good note uh, to us and when we were preparing for this about kind of the dynamics of uh, Zelensky's asking to be brought into NATO. There's yeah. a major, very significant NATO summit uh, in the next week. President Biden will be heading there. Um, there's a little bit of a game going on. Game's probably not the right word, but what Zelensky says in public versus what the, the U.S. says, the reality here, which is there's no clear path anytime in the near term for NATO. What is the purpose of Zelensky continuing to press on this? Well, he's he's... It is a kind of a guilt trip here. He's saying to the West and to, to NATO specifically, you really should have me in the tent with you. I, I've, my country deserves to be in the tent with you. We are effectively acting as your front line against your most uh, uh, dangerous enemy. Why are, we, why are you not letting us in? He knows he won't be allowed into the tent. But he's, I think, essentially aiming for the next best thing, which is continuous support. Uh, more weapons to keep the fight going, um, and at least the prospect in the future of getting into NATO. Nobody expects realistically that NATO will throw open its doors right now mm -hmm. and admit it. There are plenty of people within NATO who are not yet ready for that. Um, but if he can keep Ukraine front and center uh, in the minds of all the NATO leaders, mm -hmm. um, and if it means they'll open their checkbooks and that they will open their uh, armories to him, that's good enough for the moment for Zelensky. That's why Zelensky was likely saying in that interview with Aaron, um, needing Biden's support, President Biden's support. Now, yeah. on this front, can we just go to your take of the news we gave at the top of this, uh, that, that the Kremlin says that measures taken to, to counter a potential threat at Zaporizhia's nuclear plant. W what should we make of, of this? This is a real clear and present danger, I think. For, for months now, there have been eyes on that plant, uh, Western uh, eyes, Ukrainian eyes, and of course, Russians. And there's been plenty of signs of a buildup around that plant. Um, I mean, the roof of it was hit And by now we're, we're hearing that, yeah, the roof of it. It's a nuclear, it's the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe. It's a very, very dangerous place. And... For a while now, the, the Ukrainians have been warning that the Russians may be preparing for something like this. And people in the West have been disregarding that by saying, surely Putin won't be that reckless. Surely he wouldn't be that uh, dumb. But we've seen that recklessness is part of Putin's uh, um, sort of his it's part of his strategy. He blew up that. Um, uh, that reservoir, the dam, the dam. And, and flooded a huge part of territory that his own people control, that he controls. He can be reckless. So it's, it's, it would be, I think, a fool's uh, errand to, to dismiss the possibility completely. We hope he won't be uh, that reckless. The, the UN's nuclear watchdog uh, has been warning about this, has been trying to get in there uh, every so often and take a close look at what's going on. I would not put it past Putin to do But you think this language out of the Kremlin this morning is pretext, potentially, because they're saying we're basically preventing, we're you, setting up precautionary measures to counter any threat from Kyiv at the plant. Well, that's been, Putin, that's been the Kremlin's standard line throughout this war. We're going into the war to prevent a war. We're invading Ukraine to prevent Ukraine from invading us. We're annexing it's the... Uh, exactly. Yeah, the really? Donbass region, so as to, yeah. So, so it's all sort of this kind of reverse uh, psychology. So, yeah, we should be very concerned about this.
Avi Ghosh, thank you. Anytime. So you will want to watch Aaron's full interview with President Zelensky. It's an exclusive sit down. It is absolutely fascinating. It's tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern on Aaron Burnett out front. Well, the best part of a roller coaster quickly turning into the worst. This is literally my worst nightmare. When a ride in Wisconsin got stuck upside down for hours. This is why I never go on them. I am terrified. Also, in case you missed our 4th of July in America special event last night or slept through the fireworks in your city, here's Macy's 47th annual 4th of July fireworks show right here in New York City. Look at that. We'll be right back. Well, this morning, Mark Zuckerberg is getting ready to take on Elon Musk's Twitter. CNN has learned that Meta is set to launch a new app tomorrow called Threads. These are screen grabs Meta released of what it'll look like. Now, Meta describes it as a text-based conversation app. Some users have taken to calling it a Twitter killer. The timing here is critical. As we've reported, Twitter has been facing turmoil under Musk's leadership. Ad sales, they have plummeted, and Musk has put a temporary limit on the number of tweets people can see each day. Sarah Fisher, Ellie Honig, Errol Lewis are all back with us. And Sarah, I want to I start with you because there have been so many efforts to unseat Twitter's dominance in this space. I understand Meta is bringing a different scale to the table. Do they actually think that they can replace Twitter? I don't know about replace it, Phil, but they can definitely take advantage of this opportunity. You know, Meta itself has seen ad sales slow, not because it's necessarily, you know, struggling so much, but the ad market is struggling. And so if there's an opportunity to be able to build more engagement through a rival app, when they see that their biggest competitor is down, they're going to take it. But Phil, I want to get on something that you just said. There have been so many different companies that have tried to displace Twitter, whether it's Mastodon or Spill or any of these things, and they haven't really been able to do it. The one thing that Meta has is it's going to let people log into this new app with their Instagram accounts. So that's well over a billion people worldwide who will have the opportunity to very easily start a new account with their existing credentials. To your point, that does bring a different level of scale to this game that other competitors have not been able to do. Why are you nodding, Errol? I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens if you unleash a billion people on a, what as a competitor to what is now a broken business model. I mean, Elon Musk broke Twitter. He paid $44 billion for a company that might be worth $15 billion. Uh, the content is not moderated, uh, and that has driven away a lot of the advertising. He's now asking people to pay 8 bucks, which I'm, you know, most people are not going to do. In fact, they've gotten very little uptick on it. And so he's really sort of changed the platform in a way that leaves it vulnerable. This was going to happen eventually. Eventually, just in the nature of capitalist competition, but he really accelerated the process, mm-hmm. left themselves open to attack, and now they've got a, a real big business headache that, that's about to uh, present a challenge. You know, will it displace them? We'll see. I'm going to be tr- trying it, I guess, like everybody else here. Well, I'm not even going to try it. Why not? Why? Because uh, I can barely understand Twitter. I mean, I, I'm like the last one to figure these things out. We're like old people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What, was it just enough? Well, you're just too busy time? on TikTok and snapping <laughs> in your mastodoning and your other tech platforms. There's so many. I can't even. I can't even keep them straight. But no, I mean, I, I, Sarah made the point. Like, Twitter has reigned supreme for a long time, but nothing's forever. And I think if you mess with a product enough, eventually one of these challengers will break through. Sarah, can I ask, what does this say about Meta's kind of core business? They've constantly tried to branch out to, to kind of pull through different platforms. Obviously, you know, the, the 
acquisition of Instagram, which I think has worked out fairly well for them. Um, but given the kind of economic headwinds that tech companies are facing right now, is this a sign that they're trying to expand, build, bring in new revenue? Or is this a sign that they feel like their current model is not sustainable? No, this is just what they always do, Phil. They always copy apps. Most of the time it doesn't work because they're reactive and they rush them out too fast and then they have to shut them down. Think about them trying out the live audio space. They shut that down. They tried to build a newsletter competitor to Substack. They shut that down. So I think this is just part of their DNA. When they see an opportunity, they go for it. But what is their business? That's a critical question. For now and for the foreseeable future, the business model of Meta is to capture your attention and sell advertising around it. And so that's why an opportunity like this makes sense. If they can go after some of Twitter's user base and get a little bit of engagement, they can possibly sell more ads against it. The one area where I'm a little bit skeptical, though, is Meta for the past year has said, look, we want to get away from news. We want to get away from politics. We're entertainment now. We're fun. Well, try squaring that circle when you own a public <laughs> app that's akin to Twitter, where it's all about live conversation and political discourse. That's such I think a good it's going to be very hard for them. And people are kind of nicer at least to me, on Instagram than they are on Twitter. I think there's sort of like a nice factor on Instagram-ish, and maybe this will all change. The control room tells me I have to ask you about a cage match, Sarah. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. I am least such in a this story. <laughs> Don't blame that well, on other okay. people. You just sit there constantly thinking about the cage this match and the dynamics. This is all he's been talking about all morning. Of all right, so basically Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg are legitimately planning to fight each other in a cage match. I can't tell you how disappointed I am in Mark Zuckerberg for even entertaining uh. this idea. This is the guy who was supposed to bring a little bit of like family values and sanity to Silicon Valley and amid all of this craziness from Elon Musk. And in my opinion, even entertaining the idea brings him down to Musk's level. But I gotta say, it's keeping it interesting. It's been video? a slow summer. That's Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or something. Yeah. Yes, both him and Musk do this Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Doesn't mean that I think that they should be squaring off in a cage match, but, like, you know, let them do them. Sarah, would you pay to watch that? Yes, Sarah is, I, Sarah is the master of all things social media. I will respectfully disagree. Go ahead. I mean, well, they should at least do, do it, it for charity yeah. or something. It's ridiculous. It's over the top ridiculous. Give the money to charity. Listen, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the first Ali versus Frazier fight. Okay. So I can only assume this is intended as a tribute. It to should that. be like LeBron's The Decision. Please don't compare either of them to Ali or Frazier. I, I, yeah, it, it's not even going to be close. Um, Elon Musk is, you know, I think uh, 15, 13, 15 years older, 70 pounds heavier. It's not going to be pretty. Um, I do feel like this could unify the country. Just watching it, not necessarily rooting for one side or the other. Like, money get money to charity, yeah, watching these two people fight. This is not the example. No, this is not the example that we should be setting for future business Thank leaders. You. That if you want to duke it out, you got to get into a cage match. Thank this you. is ridiculous. You want to duke it out, make I'm more sorry. money this than your This is also another reason why we need more women in CEO positions, right, Sarah? This would, would not. Happen. I don't disagree with that. <laughs> we have to go. Says the control room who told me to ask about the cage match. By the way, thanks, guys. Thank you. You good? I'm good. It was fun. <laughs> it was it fun. says Phil. I know, I know, I know. I'm just basking in this okay. moment. <laughs> All right, the people who endured the chaotic July 4th travel rush, they're now heading home. Can the airlines and the FAA keep up with yet another busy day? Stick with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A scary time for some fairgoers in Wisconsin. It was a roller coaster. They were on it. 
And then it got stuck upside down, leaving eight of them hanging for hours. Video show a rescuer climbing up the side of the fireball ride while passengers waited. No thank you. Officials say everyone was harnessed to keep them safe. Fire officials say because of the sheer height of the ride, special equipment and rescue teams were called in to help. Nine people were treated at the scene, and one person was taken to the hospital. Officials say the problem was caused by a mechanical issue. Thank goodness to those first responders. I mean, look at those treacherous. Hope everyone's going to be okay. Indeed. All right, CNN This Morning continues right now. Congress needs to step up, pass common sense gun safety laws. Two deadly mass shootings to Philadelphia. The mayor announcing that the suspect is believed to have been randomly shooting. This country needs to re-examine its conscience and find out how to get guns out of dangerous people's hands. Hundreds of people took over Horn Street in Southwest Fort Worth for an impromptu and chaotic street party that turned deadly. There's a lot of gunfire that just started ringing out and everybody just started running everywhere. A federal judge has just blocked the Biden administration from meeting with the heads of social media companies. Two states' attorneys generals, Republicans, filed a lawsuit saying that the administration overstepped to try to combat COVID disinformation. A powdery substance that prompted an evacuation at the White House on Sunday night. A hazmat team came in deemed the substance non-hazardous, but two sources familiar with the matter uh, say that that uh, powdery substance tested positive for cocaine. Florida beachgoers spot a shark in shallow waters, while in New York, multiple suspected shark attacks were reported. What we're hearing from the shark experts is that these bites are undoubtedly a mistake. I was born in 1968, so when Jaws came out, I would not go in the water for like 10 years. Now that there's actual sharks in the water, I probably won't anytime soon. Bebe Rexa was rushed off stage. Rexa was hurt when a cell phone was thrown at her head. People are like, forgetting morning everyone we are so glad you're with us as you can see there is a lot of news to get to this morning including an update we have from that mass shooting in philadelphia update from the mass shooting more details on the uh major legal decision that was put down the injunction yesterday as well i think you and i are completely Huge fascinated story. with Big, big story, okay. lots of big news. Yeah, we'll get to that in just a moment. Here's where we begin, though. Prosecutors are now confirming, just a few minutes ago, the identity of the suspected mass shooter accused of going on that deadly rampage on the streets of Philadelphia. The district attorney's office tells CNN the suspect is a 40-year-old. Their name is Kim Brady Carriker. Carriker is set to be arraigned on murder charges today. Police say the suspect was wearing body armor and a ski mask, firing randomly at cars and people walking on the street with an assault-style rifle Monday night. Five people were killed. Two children were wounded, including a toddler who was shot four times in the legs. Bryn Gingrass is here with the latest details. Bryn, this is new information we're learning about the name of the suspect. Yeah. What more do we know right now? Just cut this into our newsroom. 34 counts is what I'm totaling up here. Uh, the charges that this suspect is going to face in a courtroom there in Philadelphia later this morning. Five counts of murder, attempted murder, aggravated assault, assault, reckless endangerment charges, and gun possession charges. As you guys said, the suspect is named Kim Brady Carriker. Remember, this was Monday night. Authorities say that this person 
went through the streets of Philadelphia for several blocks, firing an AR-15, wearing a ski mask, a bulletproof vest, carrying a police scanner, and just really firing indiscriminately at just a number of people. Some of those victims, a 15-year-old being the youngest. One woman who talked to our affiliate says her 20-year-old son, the youngest of her children, was killed, and they were just going to a local store to buy a candy bar. I want you to hear from authorities about this shooting and how it's impacted their community. I am frustrated and outraged that mass shootings like this continue to happen in communities across the United States. This country needs to re-examine its conscience and find out how to get guns out of dangerous people's hands. We are begging Congress to protect lives and do something about America's gun problem. It is disgusting, the lack of proper gun legislation that we have in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Some of that legislation might have made a difference here. 50 shell casings found in this crime scene that, again, stretched several blocks. The suspect was arrested after a short police chase. But, guys, just keep that in mind, those shell casings of an AR-15. Imagine just being in your neighborhood and seeing yeah. all of that. Phil, you mentioned uh, those young children who were victims as well. Two, a two-year-old, twins, one was shot in the leg several times, a 13-year-old as well. They're actually doing a little bit better, stable condition. Of course, our hearts go out to them. But a community just rattled, of course. Children out in their neighborhood, eight. 8.30 at night, and this happened. 8.30. 8.30, yeah. Right. Brent, fast-moving developments. Thanks so much. Right. And ahead in our 8 o'clock hour, we'll be joined by the Philadelphia District Attorney, Larry Krasman. You saw him just a short while ago. That'll be ahead of the suspect's arraignment. Tune in. We are expecting a really busy travel day. Millions of Americans heading home after the long 4th of July weekend. Airlines trying to bounce back after a wave of flight delays and cancellations that have been creating a holiday travel nightmare across the country. Take a look. Those are live pictures at LAX Airport. Pete Muntean is on the other coast at Reagan National, just outside of the nation's capital. Pete, AAA warning. This is going to be a record-breaking weekend. How would we do? We've done okay, Poppy. You know, this begins the big rush home. And the proof is behind me here at the Terminal 2 North TSA checkpoint here at Reagan National Airport. Really long line. The TSA screened 2 million people yesterday, 2.2 million people the day before that. That is the slump. The big number we saw on Friday, 2.88 million people, the highest number that TSA has screened at airports nationwide ever. So we will likely see the rush of folks coming home. The good news right now is that the cancellations have remained relatively low. Just check FlightAware. We've got 78 cancellations starting off the day nationwide today. Uh, yesterday, we saw 450 for the full day. But think back to one week prior when passengers were facing 2,200 flight cancellations nationwide. Travel expert Scott Kyes of Going tells me things are looking a lot better this week. Never just assume everything's going to go great. Have a backup plan just in case. But I think that your odds are a lot better of an on-time arrival this week than they were last week. FAA warning of possible ground stops, though, as the day goes on today in Boston, in Denver, Miami, Tampa, Orlando, and Atlanta. So some really big hubs on that list. The good news, though, right now is that so many people are traveling by car this holiday. According to AAA, about 43 million people driving 50 miles or more. The worst times to travel, listen up, between 
3 and 6 p.m. today, the best times to go before 2 p.m. So watch CNN this morning, then maybe hit the road. A lot of people trying to make it home for at least it's a two-day week at least, Poppy. I think that sounds like a good plan. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> All right, we also knew this morning a new, a significant development in the legal fight over free speech. A federal judge has blocked Biden administration officials from communicating with social media companies over certain con content. Now, the preliminary injust injunction issued yesterday stems from a lawsuit filed by two Republican state attorneys general accusing the government of going too far in its efforts to combat COVID-19 disinformation. I want to bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. And Ellie, we, we talked about last hour, I think we've all been talking about the last yeah. 24 hours, just how significant this could be, uh, the scale of this injunction and what it may mean. But take us back to the beginning. Where did this lawsuit actually start come from and how did it develop? Yeah, Phil, we've really never seen a case anything like this. Let's make sure we understand, first of all, who are the parties here? Now, the plaintiffs, the parties who brought this lawsuit are the Republican AGs from the states of Louisiana and Missouri. The defendants, the people who they've sued, are essentially the entire executive branch of the federal government, past and present. The named, there are 54 named defendants here, including the president, Dr. Fauci, who's retired, the Surgeon General, and essentially every meaningful federal agency, including H.A. HHS, CDC, DOJ, and so forth. Now, here's the allegation that the plaintiffs make. They say that the defendants, quote, colluded with and or coerced social media platforms to suppress disfavored speakers, viewpoints, and content. Now, I should mention the allegations go back to 2017, which actually started in the Trump administration, but the vast majority of the focus here is on the Biden administration. The decision that was issued yesterday includes hundreds of examples of the administration, various officials reaching out to social media platforms about certain articles and certain content that was posted. But the most common areas of focus in the decision are really these three things. COVID, mass requirements, vaccines, the efficacy, the 2020 election and election security in general, and of course, Hunter Biden. The plaintiffs allege that the defendants here were trying to unfairly, illegally influence the way social media companies coverage and post coverage of these issues. So now here's the defendant's response. They say, first of all, this is a legitimate government function. We're supposed to look out for the safety and the well-being of the public, and we're supposed to be fighting against what we perceive as disinformation. The defendants also argued there was no coercion or suppression. No one was punished for what they put up. No social media company was ever faced with any penalties. And finally, they argued there was no injury. Nobody was hurt. And this issue of redressability, they say this is not something that a judge can monitor, can police, and it's beyond the court's kin to get into this. Walk me through the injunction itself, because this was not dry, legalese, yeah. boring. This was, this was interesting writing to read, along with what it actually meant. It's a remarkable ruling. Now, the plaintiffs have won at this phase. It's a preliminary injunction, meaning for now, it's on hold. And the judge found in favor of the states and against the Biden administration. Now, the court ruled that if proven, by the way, a very big if, if proven, the present case arguably involves the most massive attack against free speech in United States history. This is a very high-minded opinion, by the way. The judge cites Voltaire, he cites Orwell, he cites George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. Now, the judge has said, here's what this means. There needs to be a line of separation between essentially the entire executive branch, White House on down, and all the major social media companies, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Google. Now, the judge has said there is to be no contact regarding protected free speech. Okay, 
But what does that mean? Can there be any contact at all? The judge gave some guidance on that, not particularly clear, but the judge said these things are not protected free speech, meaning you can have contact relating to national security, cybersecurity, security threats, and criminal activity. But again, where's the line? What does or does not fall within the heading of national security? And again, this is just a preliminary injunction, so it's on hold for now, but it's going to go up the line. So as it goes up the line, A, what is the path? Like, what happens next? But also, the judge himself. Yeah. Uh, you know, everybody's pointing out, well, he was a Trump-appointed judge. Okay, but he was confirmed, 98 exactly. to nothing. What do we know about him, his rulings in the past, and what that means going forward? Yeah, so this is the chief judge of the district court in Louisiana. He was actually a state judge for about a decade. He was then nominated by President Trump in 2017. He was confirmed by the Senate, 98 to zero. His most notable decision before this one is he blocked the Biden administration's vaccine mandate back in 2021. So here's where we are. We are at the trial court level, district court for the Western District of Louisiana. If and when, and I think it's a safe bet that they will appeal, the Biden administration will take this up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Really important to note. We have 13 different courts of appeals in our federal system. The Fifth Circuit is known as the most conservative ideologically. But judicially, I'm not sure how conservative this ruling is. Whoever loses there can then try to get the case up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Of course, it's up to the Supreme Court whether and which cases they take. So we've got a lot of important, high-stakes litigation ahead. Yeah, no question. Um, Ellie, come back with me to the table, because I know Poppy has far more questions, far smarter questions than I do about this case and what it actually is going forward. But I am obsessed with this story, and I want to bring in CNN political commentator and political anchor, Respective News, Errol Lewis, back with us on all of that. So Ellie just went through brilliantly the law here. What do you make of what this actually means in practice? If this were to become the final ruling and uh, withstand challenges in the Fifth Circuit and up to the Supreme Court, then what? FBI, CDC, DHS, DOJ? That would be startling, uh, in part because these agencies all use social media. They don't just, you know, sort of censor it and weigh in on it and ask a question here and there. They're propagating really important information about public health, about public transportation, about safety and security. Um, For them to now suddenly have a hands-off attitude and let anything uh, run rampant across all of these platforms would just be radical. It It would be a very different kind of a country that we have. It's hard to imagine how they could do their work Uh, effectively, perhaps they would have to go to some other new platform and create something new. So to take your hypothetical, if anybody can say whatever they want, propagate any kind of, you know, conspiracy theory, false information, misinformation across these gigantic (laughs) platforms, the government would have to do something just to be able to tell us about, you know, the weather or whether or not roads are blocked, that sort of a thing. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ellie and Errol, but this judge isn't saying those social media companies can't use their own content moderation tools. They're saying the government can't work with them in cahoots or what have you to tell them what to monitor. Right. Well, and then that is really the heart of the issue here. That's not necessarily addressed by this, this case in particular, but the social media companies have been uh, uh, irresponsible or asleep at the switch, however you want to put it, when it comes to this. And it has only been when either a popular swell of opinion or, or the government has said, you're doing something wrong. You are contributing to a problem, whether it's uh, suicides among teenage girls who uh, go searching on social media and suddenly the algorithm starts putting nooses in front of them and uh, articles about how to kill yourself. And it has to be brought to the attention of social media. There was the case I'd mentioned before about uh, uh, 
12-year-old girl commits suicide, live streams it, and the video stays on Facebook for two weeks before they take it down. If the government is powerless to say anything about that, to even inquire and say, gee, could you do something about this? Could you fix this? How often does this happen? If they're not in a position to do that, God help us all. I don't know where or how irresponsible they would be. We know that their algorithms uh, promote rage, anger, division, whatever's going to get clicks so that they can sell advertising around it. It's a very profitable business model. If the government is powerless to put any guardrails around that, um, they're going to do more of what we've seen that has been so harmful, so damaging, and that led to a lot of the government inquiries in the first place. One of the interesting aspects of this case is the social media companies are not parties to this lawsuit. This is the states against the administration. And I wonder if in their heart of hearts, the social media companies want this or don't want this on the one hand. No, they haven't replied to questions yet. It's interesting. Right. I mean, that's I would I would ask anyone if I had a chance to interview, uh, you know, representative one of these companies. It's nice to have the cover of like, well, the federal government asked us to do X, Y and Z. Right. Exactly. It gives them an out on the one hand to say we're responding to the federal government. On the other hand, they might prefer to be completely unregulated and just do what they please. So uh, it's interesting to see where they stand. Uh, Can I just say one example, having covered the elements of this, did not expect this to come. I think a lot of administration officials were surprised by the scale of the injunction. But an example that I think was cited in the lawsuit, which I think gets it, but uh, kind of the how this has landed up to this point is the Biden administration would regularly reach out to Twitter and Facebook mm-hmm. and other companies in kind of the the early stages of their COVID response and say this person is spreading lies about vaccines. This account is uh, spreading misinformation that is inhibiting not just our efforts, uh, the the administration's efforts uh, to address COVID, but also public health, do something about it. And often, I think more often than not, the companies would respond and say, "Okay." And there are emails that that came out during the course of this case that that was something that I think when it was explained to me at the time, I thought, all right, that makes sense. Like, that's probably what we should do on public health But grounds. this would, if this passes muster through the courts, this would ban that. And that's, as of now, they can't do that anymore because of the injunction. Is that correct? Yeah, but again, there's that gray area. The administration might say, but this is a public health, national health that's issue, so right, we're allowed. There's those exceptions there's, that the judge There's so much in. that the right. judge leaves unclear. Okay, thank you. Guys, yes, yes. stay with us. All right, coming up ahead, how former Vice President Mike Pence is trying to declare independence to some degree from his former boss, plus... More on this very candid warning from Adele. More CNN this morning to come after the break. I can't account for what other campaigns decided, but for me, uh, it was vitally important uh, to be here where the journey to the White House always begins. Republican White House hopeful that is former Vice President Mike Pence campaigning in Iowa on the 4th of July. Beautiful 4th of July, it looks like, too. Making the point to remind voters who was not there, his former boss, Donald Trump, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. DeSantis opted for New Hampshire. During one of his several events, he went after Biden and the Biden administration claiming freedom is under assault. Trump, meantime, nowhere to be seen on Independence Day. The former president, who is facing multiple indictments, stayed off the campaign trail yesterday altogether. Let's talk about all of this with political scientists at Princeton University, Lauren Wright and Errol Lewis, back with us as well. Welcome to the table, Lauren. Uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you make of that? Because he's still not directly going after Trump, but he is saying, I'm here. He has to go directly after him because I don't understand what the, la- the lane is here for Pence. I mean, he's alienated 
ultra conservative voters who believe in the lie that the 2020 election was stolen. He's also alienating, you know, those moderate voters who might uh, typically want to hear from someone like Mike Pence on the issues. So I would talk about January 6th all day, every day if I were Mike Pence. But I don't understand where he thinks this is going. He's probably not going to be the president's running mate if he uh, probably I feel like you can be a little more definitive on right. that. So, so, so the lane is unclear. But Trump has the luxury of skipping all kinds of things, including July 4th campaigning. I wrote a book about celebrities running for mm-hmm. office. Trump does not have to follow the normal rules. Pence has to follow some of the normal rules and then explain why he's running against his former boss, which really never happens. So I, I want to assist both of you um, because of what you were just talking about. Trump doesn't have to follow the normal rules. That's always been the case. It's kind of tried at this point to keep saying that. But really, he's not anywhere on July 4th. He can do big rallies if he wants. He can do retail if he wants. He can go back and forth and do whatever he wants. He will always suck up all of the oxygen. To your point, Mike Pence is in Iowa. If there is a lane, if there's going to be a breakout Mike Pence moment, it happens in Iowa. Those 90-plus counties with their evangelical base is should be his base any other year except for this one. My, I guess my question is, is trying to do it the normal way, is there any path at all? Like, does that even exist anymore in a Republican I, you party? Know, I, I'm not... I don't get it. The, the, the Iowa mirage, I think, has captured the minds of a lot of political strategists. But it feels dated now, which is it's, why... It's absolutely was, dated. Pence was like the only one there yesterday. Listen, other than a, a brief two-cycle period, 1996 and 2000, the Republican winner of Iowa has not gone on to become the nominee right. if the Democrats were in charge or it was an open seat. So 2008, Mike Huckabee wins Iowa, doesn't become the nominee. 2012, Rick Santorum wins Iowa, doesn't become the nominee. 2016, Ted Ted Cruz. Cruz. Right. So, you know, what are you what are you fighting over? Right. I mean, so fine. If you want to try and be, you know, sort of. And and this is where Mike Pence comes from. He was a radio host. He's he's beloved by evangelicals. He is part of that movement. Uh, If he somehow does manage to go back to that base and win the nomination, we can just add him to that list, along with Cruz and Santorum and Huckabee as somebody who won. Iowa for whatever it was worth. Now, I understand he doesn't have a lot of options. He's got to try and get some kind of earned media buzz and look like he's got some momentum. And it would have to start in Iowa. But, you know, watching him shake hands on that sparsely attended parade in Urbandale, I, I was thinking, it's like, man, that's a long, it's a long way from there to the White House. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're polling in single digits, I don't know if that's the right strategy. There is, uh, on a different note, a really interesting piece in Politico. I think you don't agree with it. I want to okay. get get your take here. But the Politico's senior media writer wrote that Biden needs a primary challenger. Let me just read part of this piece. Biden needs a primary opponent who can prepare him for the 2024 general election, somebody who can make him prove that he can still run the traps and beat whichever Republican he faces. If Biden can't vanquish a worthy Democrat in the primary season, he has no business entering the general Who's the opponent? I mean, I would like to know. So far, they have Oprah's spiritual advisor. They have RFK, who's mostly famous for his acting anti-vaccine stances. Well, I think point in the piece yeah. is that uh, Gavin Newsom should jump in. Or, you well, know, prominent Democrats who lined up. I mean, behind. honestly, all of these people have issues. Biden's already beaten half of them. Or in Newsom's case, he's the poster child for unpopular COVID lockdown policies, for learning loss, for a lot of things that a lot of Americans want to see debated and don't agree with. But why isn't it good to to test? I think the argument that he's making in this is put him to the test. When you see things like 
Biden referring to the war in Iraq when he means war in Ukraine, et cetera. Why not? Why not sort of make him flex those muscles? In I mean, a I would love to see it. I'm a political junkie. <laughs> I would love to see an active Democratic primary debate stage. The DNC has said we won't see that. Yeah. But really, I think the disaster for Democrats, <clears throat> frankly, is if Biden is not the nominee. I don't know who there is who could get more support overall. And by the way, to get through that process, hypothetically, they'll have to make many of the same attack points Republicans are making, or they'll have to take a stance that is so progressive against Biden, it'll taint the entire party and make Republicans' job easier that way. I think this is a terrible idea. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, Look, substantively and politically and sort of logistically, this has all been optimized, the entire Democratic uh, organization behind Joe Biden. For someone else to Which try is fascinating, and, by the way, and underappreciated. It's very much so. I mean, that's his politics. That's why he's the president. I mean, he right. sort of he took a little bit of everything. He's been, you know, talking with civil rights movement activists and environmental movement activists and the labor movement. And I think the analysis is correct to the extent that He's got to now try and mobilize all of these movements that he has either co-opted or sort of uh, gotten behind and given some kind of support to. And that's what these early endorsements from labor really represent. And the, the challenge is going to be to create an organization and then also have them mobilized and excited, properly funded, um, oriented on uh, the right talking points and ready to go next year. It's a very tall order. There's very few people who could pull it off. Errol, Lauren, thank you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right, we'll take a look at this. That is a shark swimming shallow water. You see the people around it. Oh, well, it's like right out of Jaws. Sending people thin. scrambling for the shore. Not great. Okay. Meanwhile, a string of shark attacks off of New York beaches are prompting officials to step up surveillance. We're going to speak to an expert about what you need to know if you're heading to a beach. Stay with us. terrifying video you're watching out of northwest Florida. That is a shark spotted swimming near the shore of a crowded beach near Pensacola. Luckily, no one was harmed. Meanwhile, beachgoers in New York are on high alert after at least four suspected shark attacks were reported in just the past two days, among them a man who was swimming at the beach on Long Island yesterday. Police say he was chest deep in water when he was bitten by a, quote, large marine animal. We're told he suffered cuts to his knee, but will be okay. Now, Monday, a 15-year-old boy was attacked off the coast of Fire Island. Authorities say a shark bit his toes and heel, but he was still able to swim to the shore. As a result, officials across Long Island say they are stepping up patrols at beaches, including using drones for an aerial view of the water. Joining us now is Gavin Naylor. He's the director of the Florida Program for Shark Research. Uh, Gavin, thanks so much for joining us. I have, what I always try and figure out with stories like this is, is this an increase? Is there an acceleration of sharks moving closer? Uh, or do we just like watching the videos and are kind of fascinated by the animals themselves? Uh, good morning. Uh, a little bit of all three, actually. So um, a lot more uh, documentation occurs because everybody's got a cell phone. So we see more of these things. So they, they come into our living rooms really quickly. Is it safe? I mean, I was just with my kids at the beach in Long Island yesterday. Now I'm thinking, should I let them go in this afternoon? Um, absolutely. Um, uh, people should always swim in groups. 
they shouldn't stray too far from the shore, and they should particularly avoid, avoid uh, baitfish, because usually what happens is that the sharks that we see in the United States, at least on the East Coast, are primarily uh, looking for food, mullet, menhaden, bunker. And in fact, in the, the clip that you just showed, that was a great hammerhead, very characteristically long, very high first dorsal fin. And that's actually quite reassuring, or it should be, because there were lots of people in the water, but yet the, the, the shark was meandering around chasing its food, bait fish. It wasn't chasing after people and darting to, to see if it could bite any people. So they're just trying to make a living. Um, but if we get in the way of them and we are in the middle of the bait fish, then uh, you know, bad things can sometimes happen by accident. So it is safe. Um, we rely on drones a lot. They're excellent. And when there's sharks in the water, obviously, uh, you don't want to go in because you increase the probability that they'll make a mistake. But in general, absolutely, it's safe. Okay. I would trust beach safety. It's just the, the injuries that we've seen, they seem to appear to be kind of accidental bites. To your point, you kind of got in the way. Um, I'm not minimizing the risk of a shark attack in terms of what it would do to it, a person, but is that fair to say? that The injuries that we're seeing right now are representative of kind of what you're describing to some degree. Uh, I haven't actually seen the injuries from the bites from the past few days, but the descriptions, the verbal descriptions of them sound as if they're just bite and release, which is consistent with accidental bites. Um, in Long Island, you have uh, quite a lot of uh, sand tiger sharks, juveniles that are uh, basically protected from uh, predation and they hand be hang behind the sandbars and sometimes come out to feed on the bunker. And if visibility is low and there's lots of people in the water, accidents can happen. That said, um, I haven't seen any positive identifications that their sand tigers responsible this year. I saw some videos of a lot of sharks aggregated offshore, and it's not immediately clear what species they are. And different species, as you can imagine, respond differently. So uh, um, we, we still don't have all the data to make a definitive assessment. Okay. Gavin Naylor, thank you for helping us better understand it and with some wise words. Thank you. Well, a white powdery substance discovered at the White House, prompting a temporary evacuation and a lot of finger pointing. And later, what's behind a string of violent attacks against performers on stage, including Bibi Rexa and Kelsey Ballerini? That's ahead. Well, new this morning, sources tell CNN that a powdery substance found at the White House Sunday night that prompted a temporary evacuation was field tested as possibly being cocaine. Now, the substance was found in a common area of the West Wing, not within an individual office. Near is accessible to certain tour groups. The Secret Service says it will now be sent for further testing. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins us live from the North Lawn of the White House. Um, my assumption is the, White, the West Wing is not saying a ton about this right now, but what do we know about how White House officials are responding to this? That's right. They're not. But the Secret Service has said that there is an ongoing investigation into how exactly this substance entered the White House. So here's what we know. An official has described this as a powdery substance found in a Ziploc bag. Now, it was found in the West Wing in what is a common area, as you mentioned, non-individual office and an area that is accessible to certain tour groups. Now, this did prompt a temporary evacu evacuation on Sunday evening. And now sources tell CNN that this in a field test was determined 
determined to possibly be cocaine. Now, that is not conclusive, the uh, result of that test, but the Secret Service has said that there is going to be ongoing tests and evaluation as to what exactly this is. So this is an ongoing investigation, again, into what exactly the substance is and also how it entered the White House. But we should note, Phil, President Biden was not at the White House over the weekend when this was found and when there was an evacuation. He was at Camp David and he returned on Tuesday morning. So a big building, lots of workers, lots of staffers, lots of tour groups. Love to see where this ends up. Thanks so much. Well, Adele is speaking out after a string of violent attacks on artists while they are performing on stage. Why is this happening? What's being done about it? That's next. That is music superstar Adele sounding off after a series of violent incidents against artists on stage. And just last month, multiple female singers have been attacked by unruly concert goers. A New Jersey man was charged with assault after he threw a cell phone at Bibi Rexa, hitting her in the face during a New York concert just a few weeks ago. The singer suffered a black eye and needed stitches. According to a criminal complaint, the man said he did it because he thought, quote, it would be funny. Soon after, pop singer Ava Max was slapped by a man who rushed to the stage in Los Angeles before he was swept away by security. Max later posted that the man, quote, slapped me so hard that he scratched the inside of my eye. And country star Kelsey Ballerini was struck in the face by an object thrown at her during a performance that happened in Idaho. She paused before stepping off stage and later posted, I'm fine, let's just do a better job of keeping each other safe at shows. What is going on here? Brittany Spanos is a staff writer at Rolling Stone. She covers music, fandom, and pop culture. What is going on here? You know, it's there's probably a many different reasons for this. I think that a lot of concert behavior has changed in sort of this like post-COVID world, a, a couple of years of people not being around crowds and now back in crowds. I think we have a kind of viral culture that people want to have a moment with their favorite celebrity that goes viral, whether it's a dangerous moment or something kind of ridiculous, like Pink's fans setting up a wheel of brie or their mother's ashes on stage and parasocial relationships. I think people feel like they're owed that moment with their favorite artist. Mm. Why? Why do they feel like they're, I think owed that's anything. what I don't understand. Right, like yeah. you're, you're owed the performance. Yeah. Why do you feel like you're owed more than that? You know, I think because they see their favorite artists interacting with people, you know, this is something that's happened at a lot of Harry Styles concerts, right? It's like people bring like increasingly ridiculous signs because Didn't he's going to point to him out. Too? He's been hit by a lot of objects. Yeah. He's been hit by, you know, objects people are throwing on there for him to have like the, um, like the bracelet that Kelsey was hit with was a, a friendship bracelet that a fan probably just wanted her to have and felt like, this is the only way I'm going to be able to get this to her. And, you know, they just want to have that interaction, that moment of like, maybe they'll notice me. Maybe they'll, you know, comment on this. Maybe I'll have this like meet and greet because there are a lot less meet and greets now for that artists are doing, obviously out of precaution and health and safety risks. And I think fans feel like they're owed that. And that's not the case. You know, concerts are, are meant to be this already incredible experience that you're connecting with other fans, with the artists themselves. But at the, the price of them now, I think fans want to make even more of that experience. Are there things that need to be done to make it safer for these artists? I mean, there's some events where you can't take big backpacks, but you could certainly still take a bracelet or you all have your cell phone or something. Yeah. Like, how can they be better protected? 
You know, it's it's so it's weird because there are so many precautions with what people can bring into a venue, right? Like, you know, it's it's kind of wild, like what sort of has been already let in. And then, you know, again, thinking of the, the Wheel of Brie, which is probably the most ridiculous one I've seen. Um, but, you know, I think there already are a lot of precautions in place to to have that. And there, there are concert security, things like that. I think it's really just the the artist kind of, you know, really making it clear that this is not OK and making it really clear that not only for them, but for their peers. Like, this is not a situation that should be allowed because I feel like they're feeling a lot more unsafe and don't want to give as much to their fans as they have in the past. I think that's my biggest question, right? It's like the pendulum thing on swinging the other way mm-hmm. if this type of thing continues. Are you, like, are artists talking about this right now? Are they talking amongst one another about kind of pulling back a little bit, both literally and figuratively to some degree? Yeah, I mean, I don't think artists are, are thinking that yet. I mean, this has happened in the past. You know, like David Bowie many years ago was hit in the eye with a lollipop on stage and like, you know, it was lodged in his eye. You know, there these incidents have happened over the years. I think this is obviously a very specific moment where we've seen a lot of them happen at once. Like this is a very rare moment. So I am curious kind of, you know, a lot of other fans have disavowed this behavior. You know, this is the popular belief within fandoms that this is not okay. So I am kind of curious how this is going to play out over the next few months, especially every artist is on tour right now. This is a really big touring year all over the music industry. I'm kind of curious if this is going to continue being a bigger issue, but there might also be people really empowered by how viral and famous you can get from being the person who injures your favorite artist. It's such an interesting point, Brandon. You you answered really my main question. Why would people do this? But I think you're probably right. It's this desire to have a moment to be mm-hmm. to be seen. But it's changing, right? The way they're doing this. I mean, I understand throwing a T-shirt or a friendship yeah. bracelet on stage, but throwing a cell phone or somebody. We got comedians attacked in a way that could have been lethal. I do wonder if it's going to cause artists to scale back because you kind of want that concert experience, right? Taylor Swift, we saw yesterday. She walks right down that platform into the middle of the crowd. I wonder if security people are going to say, no, you got to just stay on the traditional stage. Yeah, the days of crowd surfing and really sort of engaging in that way may be coming to an end. I mean, but, you know, if you go to uh, a a comedy show, I've gone to a couple of big arena shows, they take your cell phone, they put it in a sleeve, you get it back afterwards. It's not nearly as inconvenient as you might think. And I suppose we might start to see more of that if people are throwing those things. I mean, in sports arenas already, you know, they'll take the top off. They don't want you throwing your, you know, $6 bottle of water at anybody. And so they unscrew the cap for you. And it's really inconvenient. It's really unfortunate. But for the prices that people are paying to get access to these artists and these experiences, maybe it has to be a little bit less viral, a little bit less uh, social media driven. Or maybe prosecuted more, Ellie. Yeah, I mean, law enforcement has a role here. This is why, by the way, you know, beer is only sold at baseball stadiums and those horrible plastic containers, no more no more actual bottles or cans of anything either. So I think you really highlight an interesting trend. Yeah, Pretty- and so many concerts are at same sporting arenas and, and stadiums, so they have those similar rules too for, for a lot of it for the same reasons as well. Can I ask you, before we let you go, you, the broader point here where there, there's been like how to attend concerts yeah. stories that have been written, which mm-hmm. were a little bit jarring to me, but I think it, it underscores the fact that people coming out of the last mm-hmm. two or three years have just totally forgotten how, why or do we have need- Or have never been to a concert. Or have never been to it. Why, like, that's what's crazy. Yeah. They need, people need to be told how to act at a concert. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a, a lot of respect for the people that you're around and for the artists that you're seeing that needs to be reinforced, which is the idea that you're, you're sharing this communal space with 
hundreds of thousands of people sometimes, you know, you're sharing this space with a lot of people and sometimes you're in sort of close contact in a, in a pit or you're in seats and things like that. Just really respecting people's personal space, respecting other people's experience. Everyone's trying to have the best night of their lives when they're at a concert. And just because you feel like you're the main character does not mean that you are allowed to take that experience yeah. away from other Sorry, people. Sorry, you're not. Yeah, like everyone is tonight. You know, everyone wants to feel that way. So. Thank you yeah. very much, Ellie and Errol. Stick around. we got a lot of lot to get to. New reporting from the Wall Street Journal that the U.S. could be escalating its hit-for-tat with Beijing by restricting access to the cloud. That's ahead. Plus, prosecutors just confirmed the identity of the suspected mass shooter accused of going on a deadly rampage on the streets of Philadelphia. The city's district attorney will join us live. Coming up next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Fourth of July fireworks from the nation's capital last night, all the way from New York to D.C. to Florida. Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. It's a big news day. Phil Madeline by my side. Do you have a nice fourth? I know you worked. I was And sleeping. I didn't. I was also sleeping during the fireworks. But I like the pictures. <laughs> Me too. The CNN like concerts too. were great, by the way. That's exactly right. Wale, you were big on Wale, right? What? We're going to begin here, though, with very serious news. Prosecutors have this morning identified the suspected mass shooter accused of gunning down people randomly on the streets of Philadelphia while dressed in body armor and a ski mask. The district attorney will join us in just a few moments. Plus, possible cocaine found in the West Wing. And now the Secret Service is investigating. We'll tell you where the bag was discovered and other details we're learning from our sources. And a group of American fashion influencers facing backlash after visiting a Chinese factory and posting glowing reviews. We're going to get into the fast fashion controversy straight ahead. All of that this hour on CNN This Morning, which starts right now. Well, this is where we begin new this morning. Prosecutors are indeed confirming the identity of the suspected mass shooter accused of going on a deadly rampage on the streets of Philadelphia. The district attorney's office tells CNN the suspect is a 40-year-old named Kim Brady Carriker. Carriker is said to be arraigned on murder charges today. Police say the shooter was dressed in body armor and a ski mask as they move through a southwest Philadelphia neighborhood, just randomly firing those shots at cars, at people just walking on the street early on a Monday night. At least five people were killed, two children wounded, including a toddler who was shot four times in the legs. Police say the suspect fired off at least 50 shots with an AR-style rifle. Also, they had a 9-millimeter handgun, and they were wearing a bulletproof vest. Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner joins us now ahead of the arraignment. Thank you, uh, Mr. District Attorney. We appreciate you being with us. Another tragic shooting in the streets of America. We, we know the name now from your office. Have you learned anything about the motive? What we have learned is that by all indications, a couple days into the investigation, this was random. This was someone who set out to kill strangers, um, which of course has become way too common in the United States. We also know that he appears to have had no connection to any of the victims, that none of the victims had any connection to each other. 
that was significant. Aside from the fact uh, that they were all in a particular area, we don't have any f more information than that it was a random, premeditated, deliberate mm. killing carried out with an assault rifle, uh, and he was also carrying a ghost gun. Uh, sir, along with the ghost gun, have you been able to track uh, the origin of the assault rifle? Was it purchased legally? Was it illegally, uh, Ill illegally purchased? That is underway now. We don't have the results back. It does take a little bit of time. Uh, partly it takes time because the NRA has done a hell of a job of trying to make it difficult for people to investigate the source of a weapon. Um, but there is good reason to believe that his purchase of the AR uh, and, and his either manufacture or purchase of a ghost gun, which of course are not sold through official uh, vendors, there's good reason to think that it may have been obtained illegally. Can you update us if you do have an update, Mr. District Attorney, on the on the victims? Because, I mean, we're talking about some of the victims as young as two years old here, two-year-old boy shot four times in the legs. Any updates? Well, I can tell you the victims ranged from as young as two up to about 59. We have five who are deceased. We have four who are injured. Of the four injured, two were struck with bullets. My information on the surviving victims mm -hmm. is that they are in stable condition, and obviously everybody in Philly and everybody in the world, I would think, is hoping for their quick recovery. Uh, but this is just a tragedy at the, at the pr most profound, deepest level. We're talking about completely innocent bystanders who did absolutely nothing to put themselves at risk, uh, and, and they've suffered this horrifying consequence. Sir, can I ask, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, you, the NRA makes it very difficult to investigate and prosecute some of these cases. I think at points you have been criticized for both your decisions on prosecutorial discretion, but also I think from a numbers perspective, the convictions on illegal gun cases uh, haven't necessarily been where I think even you said you would want them to be, which there are a lot of different elements that go into that. Uh, what's your view on those who say that to some degree your office needs to be doing more when it comes to illegal gun purchases to bringing cases on both violent and nonviolent uh, gun cases? Our conviction rate at trial on shooting cases is extremely high. It's nearly 90 percent. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about shootings. We're not talking about whether or not a gun get uh, the search for a gun gets suppressed because of illegal police conduct or a mm -hmm. case gets thrown out because witnesses don't show up that's a gun possession case this man uh, this person mr Carricker, had a gun conviction and it obviously didn't stop this he had a gun conviction back in 2003 and yet here we are looking at uh you know five people dead as a result of a mass shooting rampage where he was well armed and had another firearm back at his residence. So, you know, what we are up against here uh, is people who would like to deflect, they would like to talk about other things, but the reality is this office has been extremely focused on gun violence, extremely successful in the prosecution of gun violence. We will vigorously prosecute this case, and all the people throwing out that criticism should show you their record on the <clears throat> votes that they put down or the votes they supported in relation to gun regulation. Pennsylvania's gun regulation is crap. It is crap. If you go to New Jersey, if you go to other states nearby, you go to Delaware, these states are safer and they are states that have more reasonable gun regulation. It is time for a bunch of legislators who wear AR-15 lapel pins. It's time for them to quit or to get voted out. You're talking about uh, some in Congress, some of the names George Santos, Congressman Anna Polina Luna, uh, seen this year wearing AR-15 pins. But I want to get to the point you just made 
Mr. District Attorney, about the laws in, in the state and what that means for the gun laws in the city. The city of Philadelphia has many times tried to institute its own gun laws, and you've been blocked by the state courts because of what are known as preemption laws, which block the city from instituting their own laws, laws that you refer to, for example, in New Jersey or Delaware that you view would be more effective. As I understand it right now, the most recent case on that is on appeal. It'll be heard by the state Supreme Court. Do you expect to prevail there? And if so, what would that change? You know, we're going to keep fighting. We have to keep fighting. But it is time for this legislature and, frankly, legislators across the country to swear off their addiction to NRA money and to swear off their addiction to this gun fetish that is really only shared by a moderate quantity of the U.S. population. Most Americans want reasonable gun regulation, just like they want reasonable car regulation, and they accept reasonable car regulation. Uh, it's time for people who are running for office to swear off NRA money, to swear off gun lobby money to swear off this absurd interpretation of the Second Amendment that has been put out there by militias, much of it untrue. Uh, and frankly, it's time for the Supreme Court to cut it out. This should not be a country of guns. It should be a country of people, living people. Supreme Court ruling last term in Bruin Sands, which brought in Second Amendment rights, are going to take up another uh, case on this next term. I want to ask you just about Philadelphia specifically. And you, I mean, it's been public that you and the police commissioner have not seen everything eye to eye when it comes to gun driven violent crime. A few years ago, she said fundamentally there are key disconnects here as far as what crimes we prosecute and who believes what the main drivers of violent crime are. Ultimately, we can meet all day and we're going to have to walk away and agree to disagree. Are you more on the same page, the two of you now? I, th I think that was always a misunderstanding. Frankly, what was going on here, of course, was we had a terrible gun violence crisis. It continues, although it's much better in Philadelphia than it was. It continues all over the country, although it's much better all over the country than it was. And a lot of law enforcement were acting like gun possession was the same thing as a shooting. Well, the data showed that our position was right. And our position was that when you convict someone or you prosecute someone for gun possession, there's only a 1% chance that person is going to end up being a shooter on the a shooter who is then arrested and prosecuted for shooting on the other hand when you spend your time and energy going after actual shooters at that time the solve rate for shootings was uh, close to 20 percent when you spend your time going after shooters you catch shooters when you spend your time preventing shooting you prevent shooting my point was simply that we have to prioritize all shootings that's the top priority it is important to prosecute illegal gun possession but as i just said in this very case the man had been convicted of illegal gun possession and it did nothing to stop him from doing what he did later I understand that there are elements here in terms of there's only so much money to go around. There are obviously disagreements uh, between the various parties. That is not uh, specific to Philadelphia. That is uh, nationwide to some degree. But the idea of, okay, if it's only 1% end up being actual shooters, those are, that's 1% of people that are bringing violent crime. I'm trying to understand why you can just kind of separate from that. Like 1% is still people being shot. Am I wrong? Well, maybe I can put it this way. Among the people who are shooting, 100% of them are shooters. So where should we Not, put well, I guess more what I'm of asking resources? is why you can't Most do police both. Budgets Oh, you can. And we always have. The point, though, has been at a time when it was very difficult for law enforcement to solve shootings. They were talking all day long about gun possession. 
And I was talking all day long about shootings. We're in a better place now. We're in a place where shootings are down almost 21%, according to the PPD, the Philadelphia Police Department's own data. Uh, in Philadelphia, homicides are down almost 21%, and that's even after this horrific shooting. And I think our point has now been largely accepted. I, I, I believe you are mischaracterizing the situation if you suggest that the commissioner and I disagree on much. We actually agree on a great deal. Both are important, but anybody who wants to tell me that a gun possession case is more important than a shooting, I, I do not agree. District Attorney Larry Krasner, thank you for coming on. Thank your office for the update this morning. Of course, we're going to keep tracking this. Uh, five people killed and more injured in this tragic shooting in your city. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, and this just in from Shreveport, Louisiana. Three people are dead, at least six others injured after a shooting at a 4th of July block party. That's according to our CNN affiliate, KSLA. It happened just before midnight. We've reached out to Shreveport Police for more information. We'll bring you new details as soon as we get them. Meanwhile, we want to bring in CNN security correspondent Josh Campbell. He's with us. Ellie Honig is back with us right now. Um, Ellie, I want to start with you because, you know, you had some uh, very candid words about the district attorney yesterday. Um, after listening to what he has to say, I think his, he won a re-election by a significant amount. Mm-hmm. Um, he is clearly in office and has a very clear set of priorities. His explanation for this? I don't think his conduct matches his rhetoric. Uh, we just heard the DA talk about how he's focused on actual shooters, actual acts of violence. Let's look at a couple specific cases. There was a case a couple years ago where a man robbed a convenience store in Philadelphia, shot the owner, the clerk, with an AK-47. Larry Krasner's office pled that case out for three and a half years. Is that being tough on shootings? Another case, young man was pulled out of his car and murdered in Philly. That person was not charged with first or second degree murder. He was pled out to a 13 and a half year sentence for an intentional murder during the course of a robbery. And people in Philadelphia are rightly outraged about that. If, if you want to rail against the NRA and the Second Amendment, God bless. Run for Congress. That's who makes the laws. If you're the DA of a major urban center with a real crime problem, your job is to enforce the laws. And, and I have to say, some of the numbers that he cited are, let's just say, very carefully crafted. He said our conviction rate at trial is very high. Okay, but you know what that doesn't count? Cases that were not charged, cases that were pleaded out very cheap. That's the real problem here. He said homicide rates are down, but compared to when? Yes, compared to last year, but they've spiked since Larry Krasner took office. Are, not solely his fault, it's a, but, you're, but he's very carefully choosing where, what The numbers are about net-net in terms of violent crime from when he took office to... To now, well, sh- shootings and murders are way up from 2018 when he took office to now. I have a question, Josh. I'll get to you in just one second. But I just have another question for you on the, this effort in Philadelphia to change their gun laws that yeah. he's been pushing for, but being blocked by these preemption laws by the state. Right. Um, is that unique to Philadelphia? Is that yes? Yes, that's very unusual to have. To, there, I've never heard of other yeah. than in there. Uh, the ability of a DA to say, I'd like this law to become the law of the state and then move it through. You can certainly advocate for legislation. No, it's been Philly itself cannot cannot make any of these changes. Right. And, and preemption means federal laws take precedence yeah. over state and local laws. And the courts in Pennsylvania decided that this was preempted. Hey, Josh, can I, I want to bring you in. I, the, the district attorney has made this point several times before, and he, he made it just now, um, where seems to be implying that illegal searches were hampering, you know, their ability to bring these cases were hampered to some degree by 
what the police were doing as they investigated these cases. Can you uh, kind of explain that to me or or what he's uh, getting at there? Yeah, so uh, first, that was a really great interview and very enlightening. And, you know, I'm not one to both sides an issue without merit. But when you talk to people in law enforcement, the people who are responsible for responding to these types of shootings, they see folks, uh, leaders on both sides of the political spectrum uh, who are at fault here. And let's start with the progressives. I mean, with the D.A. that you just mentioned there, I think that there was a bit of deflection there. You mentioned the illegal you know, search issue. That uh, particular D.A. has been aggressive in going after police misconduct, with, uh, which I think you know most people agree is a good thing. Uh, But the issue about the gun itself, I mean, what he said was, and, you know, there was that that deflection where he said that anyone who tells me that, you know, prosecuting a possession is more important than a shooting, no one said that. I mean, that's a straw man. I mean, I think you look at the topic and and how you actually enforce the law and solve crime, it requires both things. But to focus just on the shooters, that's like saying we prosecuted every single arsonist who was out there. Okay, well, what about the people who were illegally obtaining the accelerants in the first place? Might we look Look at that and, and you know, perhaps dedicate some resources there as well. So that's an issue that we continue to see, you know, particularly from the police that, look, we need to go after the crime before it actually happens to try to do that prevention. And then finally, I'll, I'll just point out because he mentioned the NRA. Folks in law enforcement see fault on the right as well, especially this attachment to guns and an unwillingness to pass even basic legislation that the majority of the American public you know, wants, such as universal background checks. You know, on our air, after that deadly mass shooting in May, I was in Texas covering that shooting. There was a Republican congressman who was on CNN who was offering condolences for his constituents, obviously, which is a good thing. But our colleague Paula Reed pressed him and said, what are you going to do about it? And he kept saying, this is a mental health issue. This is a mental health issue which is a favorite talking point you know, for Republicans after these shootings. But I'm not aware that that particular congressman has done anything to advance mm-hmm. mental health legislation since that shooting. So, you know, again, I'm not in the business of both sides, but you look at those that are on the beat that, that are responsible for yeah. you know, responding to these shootings. They see politicians across the board that have more work to do. Can I ask you one question on this before we go? There is prosecutorial discretion, as Phil brought up in the interview. There is also the issue of what do you prioritize? and funding and resources and the number of prosecutors you have. Does Larry Krasner have a point when he says this is what we are prioritizing as an option? Well, look, there's a saying, you know, in the military, you focus on the closest alligator to the boat, right? And if there's a shooting and that's violent and that's taking lives, obviously you're going to prosecute shooters. But, you know, in in law enforcement, you look at what's in your domain. What are the threats that we're facing here? And I would submit that it is just as important to focus on those who possess weapons illegally because we've seen recidivism. Uh, You know, we've seen crimes escalate. And so I think it's just a false equivalent to say, well, we can't we can't focus on this for resource issues. That is, by the way, to Ellie's point, I mean, you know, for those who want to run for Congress, that's an issue for Congress. If you're really interested in solving this, regardless of whether you're a Republican or Democrat, perhaps get more funding to these prosecutors that are facing this challenge. All right, Josh, Ellie, appreciate the conversation, guys. Thank you. Thanks very much. Happening now, thousands are attending funerals for the 12 Palestinians killed in Israel's recent military operation in the West Bank. Israeli forces pulled out of Janine and wrapped up their largest military operation in the West Bank in 20 years. Osama Abdelaziz is live on the ground in Janine, getting our first access there. What can you tell us? 
Well, first I have to explain why you have this bird's eye view of me, but that's because there is no infrastructure left in this camp. No running water, no electricity, no internet. So my cameraman is perched on a balcony and I am here bringing you the ground level view. You can already see these piles of rubble that have built in. That's because boulders have already been clearing this area. This is one of the main streets here in the camp and it's been turned to mud. All of the infrastructure here torn up by one of the worst raids this camp has seen in some 20 years. And again, people are coming just for the first day because this raid just ended. The first day they're returning some of them to, again, this extensive damage, some of them to homes that are completely destroyed. Israel's military says that it was targeting terror infrastructure, that it took out weapon sites, that its objective was to uh, neutralize what it called a terror haven here in Jenin. But many of these families tell us they were simply caught in the crosshair. I mean, look at the damage to this vehicle. Some of these cars, again, you can see them strewn all around these families, 7,000 to 8,000 people now have nowhere to sleep tonight. So these families are wandering about trying to figure out, is their home still standing? Where do they sleep tonight? What's happened to their place? Salma, thank you to you and your crew. Again, this is the first look we're getting uh, inside on the ground reporting. Thank you, Salma. All right, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is now off to China on a high-stakes mission. You can see her there at Andrews Air Force Base. Will she be able to help cool economic tensions? Plus, Japan is about to release treated radioactive water into the ocean. This is 12 years after the Fukushima nuclear meltdown. Should we be worried? More on that ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen now on her way to China for a high-stakes trip. It's part of a mission to cool tensions between the world's two largest economies, two largest economic superpowers. This tit-for-tat has continued to advance over technology that's been escalating between Beijing and Washington. Back and forth, export controls different critical components uh, and chips and technology and materials. The Wall Street Journal now reporting the Biden administration is considering blocking Chinese companies from using cloud services provided by American companies like Amazon and Microsoft. That follows China's move earlier this week to put export controls on certain materials and chips. That's what Yellen's entering when she lands in Beijing. Joining us now, CNN International Business Correspondent Rahel Solomon, CNN Political Commentator and Political Anchor for Spectrum News, Errol Lewis, and CNN Contributor and Biden Biographer, Evan Osnos, the author of Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. Um, I think more importantly to this discussion, Evan, uh, you wrote an amazing book called The Age of Ambition uh, that pulled a lot from your, I think, a decade as a China correspondent from The New Yorker. And I kind of want to start with you on, on this before I drill in a little bit more. Big picture, we've seen, this is now kind of the second meeting, the, the, the Commerce Secretary, the uh, Trade Representative, economic side, the U.S. and China seem to be trying to get things back on track to some degree. Um, why? Particularly when military-to-military conversations are just not happening. I think the short answer, Phil, is that the stakes are just extraordinarily high. You know, look, this is a relationship that has $2 billion of trade going back and forth every day. Uh, the reality was this relationship has been going into the deep freeze for months. And what you saw with Tony Blinken's visit, which now, after all, already feels like a long time ago, just a few weeks ago, was an attempt to try to bring it back, get some sort of warming up. And now Janet Yellen is going over there to say, look, we are going to have problems. There's just no question about it. We're going to 
slug each other with our left hand now and then uh, with these kinds of tit-for-tat disputes that you heard about just a moment ago. But we should be able to have a handshake with the right. In a sense, we should be able to have a robust economic relationship. So her message is, we are not looking to decouple here, Mm -hmm. but make no mistake, we are not backing off from this strategy of identifying specific Chinese companies, Mm -hmm. sectors of the Chinese economy that we think are imperiling U.S. national security, or that are involved in human rights abuses in places like Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. And so it's a complicated message to say, on the one hand, buckle up, folks, there's going to be more of this, but we're not looking to break off contact if you aren't. Yeah, we can't decouple, but we can de-risk seems to be what she's going in here with. Rahel, you have a, your beat, obviously, on CEOs and businesses and the impact. I think we're going to get the sort of final word from the Biden uh, White House on the, the chip export restrictions at the same time as this week. China put restrictions on two, one hard, one soft, two types of metal that are used uh, integrally in chips. So a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Oh, and by the way, she goes as the Trump tariffs are still in place. What are CEOs saying? Because it affects their bottom line. Well, it's interesting because American companies find themselves in a bit of an awkward position, right? So the Biden administration, of course, concerned about national security concerns and the implications about how some of these chips could be used militarily. But you have Chinese companies or American companies, rather, who do business in China, like Micron, for example, who's already been caught up in this. Micron gets about 10 percent of its revenue from the Chinese market that's already been caught up in the tit for tat. NVIDIA, for example, put out a statement of the CFO rather saying, in comments last week that what we expect to be this expanded restriction, these Mm -hmm. expanded export uh, restrictions from the Biden administration, uh, the CFO said that that will not necessarily have an immediate material impact, but it will have an impact on future earnings. Mm -hmm. And so national security concerns being what they are, you have American companies who are sort of in the middle of this, not to mention American companies or multinationals who do business in China who are finding the business environment to be quite uh, tense as of late with these new national security restrictions and some vagueness and some broadness in terms of how they're uh, written. And so American companies find themselves in a really tight position. Errol, the balancing act that President Biden and his team are attempting to play here, again, to Poppy's point, it's not uh, decouple, it's de-risk. Um, They want to have an open line of communication, but they are not going to hesitate to be very candid when they feel like it's necessary. Clearly, uh, the risk of military conflict is as high as it's been in a long time. How are they accomplishing what they're trying to do in terms of that balance? Well, look, they're they're building up to some kind of uh, new arrangement when it comes to the conflict and cooperation that have to go hand in hand. Um, the tough conversations are about the South China Sea and what are they territorial waters? What is the fate of Taiwan? That's the tough part. This, in some ways, is the easier part uh, because they can sort of go tit for tat. And there's a lot at stake in both cases. One thing to keep in mind, though, I think, is that the existential threat for Xi, for the Chinese regime, is really quite high. I mean, it's one thing to talk about, you know, who's going to uh, control the, the chip market and so forth. But... They had uh, protests, unprecedented, mm-hmm. just a few months ago in, no- in November. You don't see Chinese uh, mass protests against mm-hmm. that regime, and yet they had that. They had a severe lockdown. The United States, in some ways, is riding high. You've got Russia tied down in their Ukrainian debacle. You've got China coming out of a lockdown that has been disastrous, both economically and politically, in the form of actual unrest. And you have Joe Biden trying to get to reelection, trying to sort of methodically put together a a sort of a reasonable economic uh, stand and then putting aside the really, really tough questions, this military questions, the the questions of, of human rights abuses. 
it's probably the right order in which to tackle this. It's going to be a much easier conversation for Secretary Yellen than for Secretary Austin, the defense secretary. And can I just add to what Errol said in terms of the threat to Xi? China is also dealing with significant domestic issues economically, really high unemployment for its young people, uh, property uh, sector uh, crumbling. Mm -hmm. While we are uh, sort of keeping interest rates where they are, and we have been raising interest rates, they're actually lowering interest rates to try to boost their economy. So uh, certainly threats to Xi, for example. And in India, economically, at least moving closer to the United States, we just saw Seems to be. visit and, and a little bit more away from Beijing. Evan, what's a win here for Secretary Yellen? You know, you should expect her to come out of this with some sense that the Chinese accept this new normal. You know, this is the new reality. This is going to be a very tense relationship, not just for six months or six years, but going forward. The thing to watch for is to see what sort of access does she get? What sort of reception does she get? Mm. You saw they put out the red carpet recently for Elon Musk and Bill Gates. They Mm -hmm. didn't give quite that treatment to Tony Blinken. Let's see whether she gets access to senior people and what kind of messages they send about how they vision of the future with the United States. That's the thing to yeah. watch for here. Four years since we've seen a Treasury Secretary visit, so it's a big one. Thanks, guys. President Zelensky claims that Russian troops have placed objects resembling explosives on the roof of Europe's largest nuclear station. Russia says the exact opposite. We'll get into the risk ahead. Well, new this morning, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says that new intelligence suggests that Russian troops have placed objects resembling explosives on the roof of Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Zelensky calls Russia, quote, the only source of danger to the plant. Now, Moscow is pushing back. A spokesman saying the situation at Europe's largest nuclear station is, quote, quite tense and the potential for, quote, sabotage by the Kyiv regime is high, all of which could have catastrophic consequences. We're joined once again by Bloomberg editor and foreign affairs columnist Bobby Ghosh. Bobby, I, I think the hard part about this is Zaporizhia has, it seems like every 90 days or so, kind of moves back into center stage, very real yeah. concerns about what could happen, uh, potential catastrophe, threats, and then it kind of recedes a little bit. There are also nuclear inspectors that have been in and out at various points. But the risk, should something happen here, is catastrophic. That's the only part of that Russian statement that rings true. It is. The risks are catastrophic. It is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, one of the largest in the world. Although some of the reactors are sort of shut down, there's still enormous danger. You're right. It has been the target of rocket attacks, missile attacks, uh, artillery shells, and is somehow held together. It's very large and uh, and there are substantial fortifications, but that doesn't mean the risk isn't there. For weeks now, the Ukrainians have been warning that the Russians are sort of stockpiling uh, uh, ammunition, bombs, what looks like sort of booby traps around the plant. Now, Zelensky is saying that they're putting what looks like, uh, look to be explosives on the roof of some of the, pl- of the buildings there. This is all very, very, very scary stuff. It makes, uh, you know, all the history of, of nuclear disasters at nuclear power plants, it could dwarf all Can of them. Can you talk about that, what it would look like when you think about Fukushima 12 years ago, when you think about Chernobyl, when you think about what we think about when we think about nuclear disasters, what would that look like? 
Well, it would look quite a bit like Chernobyl, except that, you know, this is happening in the middle of a war zone, which greatly complicates any efforts to try and contain the damage. Um, so, yeah, Chernobyl times X, I think, is the, is the worst case scenario you're looking at. Um, if there's any positive to be drawn from this horrible situation, it is that because it's a war zone, not a lot of people are living close mm. to Zaporizhia in the way that they had been around Chernobyl. But it's still the risks to the whole of Europe, and by the way, to a substantial chunk of Russia, the risks are catastrophic. Can I ask you, uh, I was in Bali at the G20 when President Biden and Chinese President Xi had their summit, their sit-down with one another, and one of the primary takeaways from U.S. officials at that point was that Xi agreed that there should be no use of nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. right? That was the, one of the main things the Biden administration wanted out of it. It's what they yeah. got. Now, uh, the Financial Times had a report in that Xi had warned Vladimir Putin not to go nuclear, not to use nuclear weapons. The uh, Kremlin is now denying that, that back and forth to the extent it existed. What's your take on it? It's very interesting. Clearly, the Chinese want some credit uh, for having done this, for having persuaded the Russians not to use the nuclear option because the Chinese have been facing a lot of criticism from the West and from other parts of the world for supporting Russia throughout this process. This is China's way of saying, yeah, we may be supporting Russia, but we're also responsible uh, uh, international players. We are a superpower. We are trying to help. And one way we are helping is that we persuaded Putin not to use the nuclear option. Now, the Russians never want the nuclear option to be taken off the table. That is uh, an important part of their overall strategic uh, outlook. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's why they would push back. All right. Bobby Gosh, thank you. Appreciate it. You can watch Aaron Burnett's exclusive interview with President Zelensky tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern on Aaron Burnett Out Front. Look forward to that. Also ahead, a group of influencers, you've probably seen this, right? They visited a Chinese factory of the online fashion giant Sheen. Now they're being accused of falling for a propaganda ploy. We're going to talk about that and the real world impact of fast fashion on climate change, human rights and so much more. But before we go to break... Live look at Edinburgh, Scotland, where King Charles is being honored in Scotland's own special celebration of the royal coronation. Of course, the king's coronation took place in London in May. Today, King Charles will be presented with Scotland's crown jewels during a service at St. Giles Cathedral. seen that, right? It started out with business class flights and gift bags and gourmet food and drinks. But this group of fashion influencers is now facing a wave of outrage online for taking part in a brand sponsored trip to promote Sheen. Sheen is an internet shopping giant, very popular, especially with Gen Z, known for selling trendy clothes at low prices. But the Chinese company has been under scrutiny for issues like climate impact and labor practices, human rights especially after a Bloomberg investigation found that Xin products were made with cotton from China's Xinjiang region. We'll get to more on that in a moment. Of course, the U.S., as you know, bans imports from that region, accusing China of horrific abuses of the Uyghur Muslim minority population there, including forced labor. There was even a bipartisan push in Congress just in May to ask the SEC to mandate independent verification that Xin is not using forced labor but there was no sign of abuse in the rosy pictures painted by these influencers on TikTok. I think I went in there not expecting 
the best conditions for the for the workers. But I was pleasantly surprised how clean it was. Like some of the workers were waving at us and smiling. Super organized. Um, so it kind of like was on par with my expectations, the hopeful expectations I had. We should note some of those influencers have since terminated their relationship with Sheen. A Sheen spokesperson told CNN the company has no suppliers in the Xinjiang region and it has zero tolerance for forced labor. Our next guest has investigated the fa fashion industry around the world and she wrote in Fast Company, quote, what this influencer trip incident reveals is that a few narrow-minded young people can conveniently believe and widely share a false narrative that allows them a free deluxe holiday. Maxine Badat joins us now. She's the author of a phenomenal book, Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. Also with us on the environmental impact of all of this, our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Thank you for being here. We've talked about this for the better part of a week since it happened. And then Maxine, I should note, a very good friend of mine from childhood growing up in Minnesota, you wrote not only this really important book, but you wrote an article in Fast Company last week that was so striking to me. And you say this is a case study in propaganda. Yeah, so this was a trip that was paid for uh, by Sheehan. As you mentioned, it was this luxury trip and it was, um, you know, having these influencers go to an innovation center of Sheehan, so not an actual factory that Sheehan nor any other fashion company really owns the factories producing their garments. Um, and these people, you know, said, even kind of claimed to be investigative journalists asking um, these people who were working at this innovation center um, all about their day. Um, and I think, you know, if you're in front of your boss at your place of work being translated by your boss's company, um, you know, you're, you're going to be saying something different than you might say in your own home, in your own privacy. So it was a real case study, I think, in propaganda um, more, than, more than anything else. I, I want to read, uh, we asked Sheehan about, about this, about the broader issues, about the pushback they've gotten. And part of their statement that they said to CNN says, quote, Sheehan is committed to transparency, and this trip reflects one way in which we are listening to feedback, providing an opportunity to show a group of influencers how Sheehan works through a visit to our innovation center and enabling them to share their own insights with their followers. I mean, that's kind of exactly what you were laying out. An innovation center is not a factory. Like, sure, we'll grant you that. But what's your response to the, the statement itself? Well, I mean, they, they weren't trying to, they were clearly trying to push a message of, right. um, you know, the, the, the influencers had the same talking points. They were repeating the same story um, and coming to the same conclusion uh, based on the uh, information that was presented to them. So I think it, it's, it's that combined with, you know, these are TikTok influencers and there's, you know, new reports coming out about how Gen Z is looking to influencers on TikTok for their news. So it's a really dangerous combination of this influencer economy, social media, and then this really hyper disposable fast fashion of which Sheehan is the apex of it. It really is the apex of it. So Bill, um, Maxine uh, wrote, not in this piece, but, it, but in her book, that uh, apparel production doubled yeah. from 2000 to 2015. Actually, every time I buy something, I think of Maxine, right. truly, right. because I have a guilt factor that I think we all shouldn't do. We need this, et cetera, because what she does in this book is actually investigative journalism. It is actually getting into these factories. It is actually seeing the climate impact of all of this. This is huge when it comes to climate. Massive. Massive. But it just seems like nothing's being done on the regulatory front when it comes to fast fashion and climate. It's really difficult, as, as she said, that, that even the brands you know and love don't make their clothes. 
It's this Byzantine network of hundreds of different suppliers around the world, usually in the global south, where they're working in razor-thin margins. And so the pressures just to produce, much less worry about air and water and, and worker rights, it just, just doesn't exist. Uh, I, I've read statistics where anywhere between three and 5,000 gallons of water is needed to make one pair of jeans, and 70 pairs of jeans are produced a second in, in the world. And 80% of those end up in landfills or incinerated. And, and when you think about the dyes, there was a saying in fashion that if you wanted to see next year's trends in colors, look at the certain rivers in Asia because of the pollution there. Now there are rivers in Bangladesh that are just black from all the different dyes flowing together there as well. And this just isn't thought of. And, and, and when we grew up in a world where a company had one line or a couple lines of seas every season, and then they filled their stores and whatever wasn't sold, you know, went down the food chain sort of into resale and all of that. Now, this sort of fast fashion, one influencer, like spins the whole machine faster. It makes it harder and harder to control the bad parts of our choices. This is going to be an ignorant question. I literally buy clothes once a year, maybe at most. But can you explain, like, to, what, what is fast fashion? Like, what are they, and I was asking our, our colleague Andrew, who's kind of the, very the, the brain power behind this idea and also very fashionable. Explain to me what this is and why it's become such a, a critical thing right now. Yeah, so fast fashion, so when, when we were growing up, you know, there were four collections a season, uh, sorry, four collections a year each season. Um, there might be a hundred pieces in that collection. And, you know, when we were going back to school shopping, that was our main time of buying clothing for the year. You would buy, you know, one or two outfits. Um, that is completely different today. We have five times more clothing in our closet than we did in the 1980s. It's just a dramatic rise. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have these fast fashion players. You have kind of the well, now traditional fast fashion players, which is your H&M, your Zara, they would produce, you know, what was seen as crazy thousands of products um, per quarter. Now you have Shein that is producing, introducing thousands of new styles a day, a day. A a day. day. And, and, and Shein and Temu um, combined, um, they are sh shipping 600,000 uh, pieces of product every day into the United States. It's so literally it's, what I just underlined in your article, 600,000 packages a day into the United States. Yep, and that, and that is why this company is now valued more than uh, Shein, uh, sorry, more than Zara and H&M combined. It is just, and, and we don't hear about it because it's happening on TikTok. These are, it is completely, you know, marketed and fueled um, by TikTok influencers and Shein, Shein sending in free product to, to these um, influencers. And if you look at yeah. how our wants and needs have have evolved from an industry that was just to keep us warm at some point and then became a, a symbol of who we are. It's how, that's how we get love and acceptance from society. Now it is literally the business model is to sell you that five second charge of unboxing and then it's over because you can't show that yourself in that outfit ever again. Wow. <laughs> it's planned obsolescence just on a global level. So their argument, I know we have to go, the company's argument is that their business model reduces waste by producing small batches and only responding to the trend of the moment. That is absolutely not true. They are air shipping their product that has an enormous environmental footprint. This industry is, uh, has a larger carbon footprint than France, Germany, and the United Kingdom combined, and Sheen is at the very this top industry. of This industry. Yep. And is responsible for at least a fifth of water pollution. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Maxine. Thank you guys very Summer much. Summer reading. It's important. Check it up. Appreciate it.
All right, the latest installation of Indiana Jones, seeing not so thrilling numbers at the box office. Harry Hinton is back finally with this morning's number. With a tan. With a tan. Where'd you go? A new haircut. Same dance moves. Harry, Harry, meet my friend Maxine. And I've been looking for this all my life. Harrison Ford is back again with the fifth and final installment of Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. It hit the big screen this weekend, but it's box office numbers leaving a little something to be desired. CNN senior data reporter Harry Enten is back. Yes! He's back. You looked at the numbers. What is the morning's number? All right, this morning's number is... 143 million. That's how much Indiana Jones made globally at the box office as of Monday. Keep in mind that it cost about $300 million to make. So we're well short of that figure. I'm not sure they're going to actually turn a profit here. And that's a big thing given how important the Indiana Jones franchise has generally been. But I will note, if you like nostalgia, don't worry. You will get you a fix this summer. Look at other films that are coming out soon. Mission Impossible 7, Barbie, and of course the teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. So if you didn't get enough with Indiana Jones, you'll get enough in the upcoming weeks and months. What else do we need to know? So, you know, I think there's this idea of, okay, is nostalgia bigger now than it ever is before? I should point out that nostalgia has been around for a long period of time. So take a look at old franchise films back in 1989. We have Batman. We have James Bond 16. We had Star Trek 5. So nostalgia goes back away. But the thing that I will note is that I do think there is a little bit of longing for yesterday's past more now than ever before. Look at this. Americans who think the USA's best days are behind us, up to 48% now. Look where it was last decade. It was just 26%. So more Americans yearn for days past. Your best days are in front of you, Harry. I think all I of us are. I never have a doubt about that. It says. <laughs> It what? says happy birthday in the prompter, and I was I worried because I couldn't see to who, and then I thought maybe it was your birthday, but it's not it's your not birthday. It's not my birthday. But I'm just getting to know you, so I didn't really know if it was your birthday. Thank you. Happy for birthday. To my son, Carter, my guy, I love you. Six years old. I will see you very soon, my friend. There he is. Cute Aww. little kid, takes after his mom, way better looking than the rest of us. <laughs> happy birthday, buddy. Happy birthday, Carter. Thanks for being with us. Phil's going to go see his little guy now, and I'll see you here tomorrow. CNN News Central starts after this. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.